Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. If we could remain standing for the reading of God's word, please. Today's reading is Ruth 1, page 127 in your Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moab wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, excuse me, bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <clears throat> so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth and the Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us uh, one more time. God, we invite you into this space. Uh, You are here. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you, Lord. 
Um, would you speak to us as your people who've covenanted with you to, uh, to, to love you and to give you praise that we've already done? So, Lord, we gather in this place to be envisioned, to be taught and instructed by your word, to be encouraged by your people and the prayers of your people. Um, so no matter where you are today, I just want to ask God that he would speak to you. God, would you speak to every man, woman, and child in this room today? May you um, comfort those who are brokenhearted in, in distress and in despair. Um, may you um, help us gain perspective on our suffering this morning. Um, would you meet us in the midst of loss and pain uh, as we dive into this tragedy story of Ruth chapter 1? Um, so God, we just believe that you are in the midst um, working through these things, and we want to uh, see you, Lord. We want to experience your healing this morning. We invite you to uh, heal us of sickness and grief and pain, Lord, so that we may see your redemption. Um, So Holy Spirit, would you flood this place? Uh, Would my words fall to the ground, Lord? May your word last forever in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You guys can have a seat. Welcome, welcome. Uh, I want to reiterate what Talis said. Happy Mother's Day, everybody, all you ladies in the house. Um, if there's not, besides the blood of Jesus Christ, I think I'm more thankful for women this year than any other thing. You guys are, you ladies are amazing. Thank you for um, everything you are and do to this community. Um, we want to give you just a gift to honor you. Um, so if you are a mom or if you are a spiritual mother to someone, um, if you have, if you desire to be a mom and you've lost uh, a child, or if you just desire to be in a place of motherhood, but yet the Lord has not opened that up to you. Um, we want to give you um, just a little gift, um, a succulent to you. Um, there should be enough for, for even most, we might have enough for some women just to take one too as well. So if you want to linger around and you really want a succulent, there's probably going to be a couple left over. So I um, just want to say that. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so as we dive into this passage, uh, ironically, we get to, on Mother's Day, dive into the book of Ruth, um, which is a beautiful picture of uh, what God does in the life of two women, Naomi and Ruth. Um, today is chapter one is honestly all about tragedy. Uh, it's about loss. It's about uh, going through suffering and pain. Um, there's a lot of death. And it's interesting, as we're going to study this book, we're just going to take it chapter by chapter at a time. We're going to move through it um, um, a chapter at a week, so we're going to be in this book for four weeks. Um, All throughout this book, one thing you need to know is that God is never directly or explicitly speaking or acting. Um, It's one of the only books of the Bible where God never speaks, never acts. Um, so I, what I want us to zoom in on each week is see that um, every time, every chapter, what we're seeing is that God is, is actively participating but hidden. Um, God's hidden um, in, these, these, in our lives often, often in our lives, I don't know about you, but we desire for God to speak audibly to us. Um, you, you, I don't know about you, but you, we desire for God to come down, be present, um, speak a word to us, um, be present with us. We want to feel his presence, but often he's silent. Um, Often we don't see him at work and we're wondering where. And what I want to show you is God's hidden but undeniably acting behind the scenes in this book and in your life. Um, That even though you don't always hear him or see him or feel him, um, even in the midst of your loss, in the midst of grief, in the midst of tragedy and suffering, God is actively working in your life. 
And then some of you, like when I say that, there's like a blank stare. There's like a, uh, I've heard that before. Um, you're very familiar with that language, so it already kind of goes in one ear, ear and out the other. Um, but I pray today that experientially you will have hope again that God does those things. Um, and so uh, I, I pray that you would see that God's hidden, um, but his, he's still acting in this story. And so um, I want to set just like one clarification in this book. Um, whenever, if you've grown up in church, you've probably studied the book of Ruth. Um, a lot of you ladies probably like once a semester in your like women's like college group, right? Or, you know, you, you've broke out Ruth and Naomi. It's like the go-to. Um, often when this is taught, I went back and like just tried to like re-listen to a couple of sermons. Nine times out of ten, I think this is taught poorly in the church. Not that I have any right answer, but I just think we've been so inundated with uh, American uh, the American worldview that we've Im- imported our American dreams into this book. Um, we've made this book a rags to riches romance. This is not a rags to riches romance story, all right? Um, we often teach that like, oh, look, you know, Naomi's hurting and, look, uh, you know, Ruth is, she finds this like really generous, well-off, handsome man named Boaz. I need to find my Boaz. He's waiting out there for me somewhere. And we just get, we, 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 we kind of start to build this up, and she proposes to Boaz, and he says yes, and they get married, and, and they have a kid, and they he whisk her off. It starts to sound like this when we teach this in the church. Um, this is not, there, there is some romance going to come out in this book. Wait till chapter three gets a little crazy. Um, but it's primarily not a romance book. Um, this is a book, uh, this is a female Job story. Um, This is a story about uh, Naomi who has lost everything. Actually, I would say suffered way more than Job. Um, and, and, and she is, has no voice. She has no value. She has no food. She has no family. And so in the midst of this tragedy, we just need to just have a reality that, that, that God's working, and Job's question was about God's justice. Naomi's question, it's about God's love. Does God still love me? Does God really care about me in the midst of pain? Does he still care? Yeah, I know that he's good theoretically and theologically. I know that he's supposed to be in control, but does God really care about me? And so I wonder for you, um, if you've been through any kind of loss, grief, despair, distress, anxiety. um, And so I want to talk about how can a loving God allow us to go through so much pain and suffering. So first, a little background. Verse, uh, verse 1, um, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So it says that there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he, Elimelech, and his wife and his two sons. So um, just a little background here. There's Elimelech has a family. He's a leader, he's, he's a, he's a leader in his town, <clears throat> um, and he is in Bethlehem, the Jewish place, which you know is where Jesus was born. Bethlehem uh, is a Hebrew word made up of two words put together, um, which means house of bread. And it, ironically, there's no bread in the house of bread. Um, that's the situation. So there's a famine in the land, and Elimelech says, I'm going to go to Moab. Now, Moab is a place um, that in Deuteronomy is mentioned uh, chapters and books ago from this that um, was started because Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, and that birthed uh, the Moabite people. So they were the half-breeds, the muggle-borns. Um, they were the, the ones who were, were kind of um, uh, outsiders, if you will. But yet God, some, you guys, some of you are just not getting that reference. Um, <clears throat> they, they were, uh, in a sense, also cursed by God, Deuteronomy says. Um, so they were not a people 
people that were um, of the Lord following Yahweh, but they followed other gods. And so what, what Elimelech does is he goes out to this country of Moab because he hears there's plenty there. And the irony is, is that as Elimelech leaves the land of, of empty to go to the land of plenty, but when he gets to the land of plenty, he leaves empty. Um, he, he gets there and he experiences death. Elimelech dies. Uh, his two sons that went out there, they married two Moabite women, or, uh, Orpra, which, just so you know, that's where Oprah gets her name. Just, so when you go to work tomorrow, what did you talk about at church? Well, we talked about how Oprah got her name, and then you can explain. Um, but Orpah and, um, and the name other is Ruth. So the two men, uh, the two sons marry these Moabite women, um, and, uh, and, and, they, and then Naomi is left with both of her sons dead and her husband dead. Now, um, you got to put this in perspective of a patriarchal culture, all right? Um, in a patriarchal culture, which is amazing, by the way, that this book is in the Bible, <laughs> incredible that they would have put this in the Torah at this time. So Naomi has no voice. Um, a widow at that time had no value and capacity to provide for herself. The only way she would have value is, is to produce. She was, her value was in producing sons for her husband. Um, and so she... Uh, uh, the only way to have value was if her family or children would provide for her, um, but she has no family. She has no family to provide for her. She just has two now Moabite daughters-in-law um, that are with her, two extra mouths to feed, and there's no food. And so she's in a dire situation. And so a woman's value at that time was completely derived from the men in her life. Um, that's why she's constantly, as you're going to see, like obsessed with telling Ruth and Orpah, like, go find a husband in your land, go get a husband, go get a husband. That's not, we read that through American lenses of like the herd of singleness, which is accurate today. But at that time, it was literally like, this is the only way you will have significance. This is the only way you will have life is through this culture. So it's a terrible account, um, and then things are hopeless for Naomi. Now, um, do you know what it's like to go through trials? Um, if you're breathing, you know what it's like to go through trials, right? Um, we've all experienced loss and pain, and I want to talk about three ways God is at work, um, even when we feel like we've been forgotten. Um, some of you in this season of life, like you feel like God has forgotten you. Uh, you look at everyone else around you and who is succeeding in your eyes or making it or just seems to go through life effortlessly. Um, they seem to be able to, like, you know, work a 60-hour-a-week job and be an amazing parent or, or, like, have, like, friends around them all the time. And you're in this season of, like, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> Maybe it's through loss of, of, of friends or loss of job or income or loss of family. Um, for some of you, it's just an, a, an aspect of growing older. It's a loss of youthfulness um, in which we grieve. Um, and so what I want to show you today is three things that God's doing even when we feel like we've been forgotten. Number one, um, when we feel like God is, uh, when, we've, when we feel led astray, God is still working to redeem. Um, when so I want to show you that Naomi, what she does here is she follows her husband's leadership, Elimelech. Now, Elimelech, uh, sins, his sin was failing to trust God. 
and provide. He directly disobeys God. He's in the midst of his people. And you would think like, oh, great, he's going to be like a missionary to Moab. That's what we're, because they're different. They're di-. That's not the context. Um, the context is that he is in the place of God's people, and he is, there's a famine in the land. And instead of in the midst of famine, trusting that God's going to provide for him, he goes out and says, you know what, I'm going to fix this situation myself. And what the greatest sin of Elimelech and fathers and guys, listen up, he, he, he believed that providing for his family was the ultimate call of his life. He believed that if I just provide for my family, then I'll be a great husband, great father. He did not provide for his family spiritually, though. And so for many of us, I want you to hear this, uh, dads and guys, that like this idea of like, oh, I'm providing tangibly and monetarily for my family. I'm doing a great job. Like, I just would commend to you and call you to question and say, like, is that really what it means to be a father and be a man? Uh, Limelech here is, 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 is believing this lie that if I provide for my family, then that's what matters, and yet he sacrifices his family, calls him to a place where there are no, there's no synagogue, there's no believers to call them back to God. He's not leading his family spiritually. They're there for 10 years with no church, no community, no believers, all for the sake of trying to find food. And so he cares about provision, but not spiritual provision. And so his sons die, and this is a case of a man who trusted his own wisdom and failed to trust God to provide for his people. Now, um, when did this occur? Verse 1, we see that it was when the judges ruled. So Elimelech is not alone. This is a time, a very dark period of Israel's story. Uh, They are, Judges was a book that says everyone did right as they saw fit right? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so there's consequences to our sin, and Naomi deals with these consequences. Another irony is that, you know, you got the irony of leaving Bethlehem, the house of bread, to find bread, and there is no bread um, there. The other irony is Elimelech's name means, my God is king. His name means, my God is king. And so his own name testifies to the authority of God, but yet he goes and he, instead of trusting and running into God's authority, trying to prove that he can run his own life. He can make his own decisions, and we can be guilty of the very same thing, that we try to make decisions in isolation. We try to make spiritual decisions without talking to, our, to others. We start without talking to God. And, and so I want to talk about, real quick, just a little excursus here, four categories of suffering that we go through. There's, there's, there's no suffering unless there's loss. And there's no loss. You, you got to think about this. We, what is loss? Lo- there's no loss unless there's love. There's no loss unless there's love. And so when we love something that is taken from us, we experience loss. And there's four kinds of suffering, and there's probably more than that, but I just think most suffering can fit into these four categories. The first one is because of bad decisions that you've made. One is the bad decisions you've made. We look at Elimelech as this. His life was the result of bad choices that he had made for the most part. And most of our suffering, I think, would be alleviated if we just made better choices. But it's frustrating, right? Because I, I want to be able to make bad choices and, for, and then I can be angry at God for everything bad that happened. And if I make bad choices, I can just like let him be the one who is the one who's the reason. And I want to stop making, face the consequences of my choices. And that gives me a reason and right to be angry with God. 
gives me a right and reason to be angry with God um, because if I continue to make bad choices, but bad circumstances and consequences happen, therefore I can be right. Does anybody else resonate with that at all or just kind of feel that tension? And I want to I say this, that the reality is, is that Jesus died for your sins and, and he died for your, your, your sins, but sometimes we just do stupid things. All right? I don't know if he died for our stupidity. I need to like, think about that theologically. But some, there's nothing God can do about your stupid, our stupidity. All right? And sometimes we just make stupid choices that God cannot intervene. Yet we expect God to be the one to fix it. And so if you want to eliminate suffering in your life, <laughs> it sounds so simple. Stop making bad choices. All right? All right? Stop making bad. If you don't know if you're making bad choices, just ask someone, am I making bad choices? There's some people who want to vent all about their suffering, and they never give a chance for anyone to speak or even ask, am I doing anything wrong? So you might want to ask, hey, am I doing anything wrong? And for someone who is a friend to be able to tell you yes or no, or it's complicated. Second thing is we suffer because others make bad choices in our life. So Naomi suffers because of Elimelech's bad choices. Ruth and Orpah suffer because of these choices, and so for a lot of my suffering, the bad choices that, that, that happen, the bad suffering in life is because of all you guys. I mean, you know, it's like it's your fault. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that, that, that it's, it's everybody else's issue. No, but there's, there's a sense, though, that um, you're going to make bad choices. It's going to affect your life when you're an adult. But I think mo- almost all of our suffering as children is because of bad choices that someone did to you. You see, most of you as children, there was bad choices done to you. It wasn't sin that you did, but it was sin done to you. And then somehow you begin to make choices, and then those choices begin to blur with the other people's bad choices that were done to you and sin done to you. And then you began to mistake in your identity as those choices that were done to you. You somehow found your identity in the mistakes that were done for you and to you. And you began to wrap your identity in that, that I'm like, I'm not loved, I'm not wanted, or I'm, I'm not really going to hold up, or I'm not going to really mount up for much, or I'm not going to be significant. And you found your identity in those things because there was bad choices done to you. And so we suffer because of other choices bad. And so, I mean, just think about this. Think about how much suffering would be alleviated in our world if we focused on our character more than we focused on our accomplishments, if we focused on who we are becoming more than what we are doing, think about how much more suffering could be eliminated and just flip this around. How much suffering could you eliminate if you focused on your character, if you focused on who you are becoming rather than what you are accomplishing? Um, the third thing that happens is suffering is just bad, bad things that we cannot explain. Um, no one could have predicted that you're going to be predisposed to get cancer. No one could have predicted there was going to be a famine in the land of Bethlehem, right? So part of this is there's just some bad things that you just cannot explain. I can't explain to you why Jude got 102 temperature this morning at 920 right before church, right? Again, there's just bad things that happen to you. There's some, no one can explain. You know, some things are just the, the, the small, but you could go even bigger. We talked about miscarriages this morning. No one can explain why... 30% of conception is left in miscarriage. There's some things that we call it nature or fate. And um, you say, I don't know if you ever feel like, some of you are in that season, you just feel like nature or fate is just fighting against you. You feel like just constantly there's bad things happening to you that are not explainable. Um, and, and I think it's interesting 
that like we tend to blame God in those moments. But in our world, you know, have you ever thought about this? Like the universe, nature, vibes, they're always positive. They're always warm. Never like got like a, like, oh man, I just like the vibes are against me this morning. Like the universe is out to get me right now. Like you walk out and see the beautiful stars and sun and you're like, it's after me. It's after me. Whenever we talk about the universe and being in sync, it's always these warm, fuzzy things. We never like blame the universe for the bad things in our life. Have you ever thought about that? It's never like, you're after me. My life is a horror film. The universe is against me. And, but we often like to think, oh, it's the universe that's for me. The universe, the universe is not for you. God is for you. And God created the universe, therefore the universe is for you. But it's God who is for you. Romans 8 says that, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so God has loved you and cherished you in the midst of famine and loss and grief. And you yourself cannot even separate you from his love. And so the moment um, that we begin to, to see that, um, that there's these, these three things, there's, there's a fourth one, it just gets worse, guys. Um, <laughs> sometimes um, bad things happen when you make the right choices. Sometimes you make the years no way out. You lost your job because you made the right choice. You didn't marry the girl or the guy because you made the right choice. You, did, you, you lost this, this amount of income because you made the right choice. But here's the thing. You did that, but you didn't lose yourself. You see, like when we suffer, here's the key, guys. When we suffer from making the right choices, that's the moment that redemption and meaning is coming into our life and others' lives. Let me say that again. The moment that you begin to suffer from making the right choices, that's when we begin to discover meaning and suffer in the midst of suffering. And others around us begin to find redemption in the midst of suffering. And so it's, sometimes we, we, we can't escape the fact that bad things happen. That, that this is what I've realized. It's not suffering that destroys us. It's the lack of meaning in the midst of suffering that destroys us. And when you begin to sacrifice, and it creates a, you know, a loss of things that you, the world perceives as gain, that's when you begin to live into your redemptive story. That's when you begin to find meaning in your redemptive story. I don't know, some of you are with me, some of you aren't. But I'm gonna, we're going to get into this, finding redemption in our story. Let me just keep moving on. Um, Ruth chapter 1, verse 5. And despite the sadness of verse 5, God has not forgotten Naomi and his daughter-in-law. And so God is going to provide redemption both to them in the coming weeks. We're going to see next week, we're going to see how God provides and provides. But Elimelech sinned, yet Ruth, the Moabite woman, the God, listen, this, the God-forsaken woman. Remember, Moabites, who they were. It was the God-forsaken woman who would go on to become the great, 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 great granddaughter of King David, who would be the great, 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 great granddaughter of Jesus. And she would be the great matriarch of Jesus. She is in the lineage of Jesus. So yes, Elimelech sinned, yet God worked in the midst of his sin, not only to redeem them, but you and I are here this morning because God worked in the midst of Naomi and Ruth's pain to redeem us all for eternity. That God used this horrible story in the midst of Elimelech's sin, yet out of that, Ruth and Naomi would never be in the lineage of, I mean, Ruth would never be in the lineage of Jesus. So what I want to show you is God is working even when we cannot see him. Do you believe that? That God is working even when you cannot see him. He's working behind the scenes. And we're in the middle of the story right now and you can't see it. We're, we're wondering if God's going to show up. And it's, it's not what you go through that's going to crush your soul. 
It's how you interpret God's character when you go through what you go through that will crush your soul. Let me say that again. It's not what you go through that is going to crush your soul. It is how you interpret God's character when you go through what you're going through that will crush your soul. Many of you are going through suffering and pain. You're like, it's God's fault. I talk to people like, why would I live, worship a God who, who would let something like this happen? I'm like, okay, fine. God doesn't exist. Do you still have suffering? Yeah, I still do. Okay. So who's suffering? whose fault is the suffering if God doesn't exist? It all goes back to the foundation of us as humanity. We are responsible as a foundation, not individual choices, but foundationally the beginning of the fall of humanity is responsible. So what if, what if we're responsible but God is, still exists? So God cares and he enters into our suffering, he enters into our pain. The God of the Old Testament is not this God who we often think of. It's funny, I think we talk to people about God of the Old Testament. Of like, oh, he's angry then. It's almost like Malachi happened and God went to therapy for 400 years. And it was like, you know, I had some issues. I had the whole, you know, the whole flood thing behind me against humanity. I got to deal with that. I need to work out my anger. And now, oh, no, Jesus. Hi, how's it going? Jesus is here. No. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. God is the same throughout. Look at Psalm 145, verse 8. It says, the Lord is gracious. He's compassionate to you. He is loving to you. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love towards you. God has always been the God of love. He's always been slow to anger. He's always been rich in love. And Jesus is love because God has always been love. And so when you step into the human history that is filled with hate and violence, often what happens, I think, is we project our own self onto God. We are projecting our own selves onto God, our own violent heart onto God, our own sense of blame onto God. Jeremiah 31, 3 says, I have loved you, God says. Listen, such matching with the theme of Ruth, which is all about this word hesed, this unfailing love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God's love will chase you down. In the midst of your suffering, what God's love is doing is it's chasing you down because perfect love is faster than fear. And it will outrun fear. And his love is chasing you down in the midst of suffering. He says, I've drawn near to you. Listen to Hosea 11. In the Old Testament again, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Taking them by the arms, he's like using this language of a mother. He says, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and bends down to feed them. I don't know about you, but I want to be led by that kind of kindness in the midst of my suffering. Um, Second thing God does in the midst of our suffering is that when we are on the verge of breakdown, God is on the verge of breakthrough. When we are on the verge of breakdown, God is on the verge of breakthrough. Naomi is in the midst of deep sorrow, loneliness. She hears there's bread back home. She tells her daughter-in-laws, don't go with me. Listen in verse 13. It says, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying She says, no, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. She's like, the Lord hates me right now. That's essentially what she's saying. She says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. She's left, Naomi. She's gone to her God. She's done the expected thing. You need to return home. There's nothing here for me. There's nothing good in my life right now. And when it feels like God has turned his back, God is still present. Naomi is bitter 
and she's angry with God. And my guess is there's some of you in the room who've experienced loss, and you right now are bitter. You found yourself exactly where Naomi is. You're angry with God. And what I want you to see in this passage is that even though Naomi was bitter and angry with God, listen to this, even, even though Naomi was bitter and angry with God and convinced God had turned his back on her, God was working in that very moment. When she makes an argument that God hates her, God is working in that very moment. Not after or not before. And so if you're in that place of like, God's turned his back on me, that's when you were on the verge of breakdown, when you were on the verge of vulnerability and fragility, God's like, I'm on the verge of breakthrough. And so I, I don't know, it's true of all of our, I think it's true of our church. I think it's true of the big C church. I think it's true of our nation. Our nation feels so filled with fragility right now and almost breakdown. God's like, I'm on the verge of breakthrough. I'm about to break through. I'm about to break through with the revival. I'm about to break through to the church. I'm about to break through. And for in your life, so, I don't know about you, but there's so many times when you're like, God, is this, is this all there is? God's like, I'm, I'm on the verge of breakthrough. You can't see it right now, but it's going to happen. It's going to come. And whenever, for Naomi, she could not see this. She could not experience it. And God doesn't come and break through often the way we expect. He comes and tangibly breaks through through her life through a living presence of a friend. And what God wants to do in every, for you, God, some of you are looking for God's presence in all these mystical ways. Yes, he speaks in visions. Yes, he speaks in things. But there is a friend of covenantal faithfulness right before you that he's put in your life that he's like, you've been looking for me and he's like right in front of your face because of a covenantal friend who's been there with you through thick and thin, just like Ruth. Ruth does the most audacious thing. She loves for no reason at all. There was no reason for Ruth to go with Naomi. Naomi has complete loss. Ruth should go back to her family. She should find a husband with her people. She's going to leave Moab and and go into Jerusalem and be looked down upon and stubbed her nose at and be accused of being a prostitute because that's what many Moabites in, in Bethlehem were. And she has nothing attractive Nothing to make her go. But she says, where you go, I will go. And where your people go, your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. And I think God is doing something on Ruth's life. I think she is having a conversion moment where she's not just embracing Ruth. She's embracing the God. I mean, she's not just embracing Naomi. She's embracing the God of Naomi. And she is, she is showing us what God is like. Because that is what God has done. God is just like Ruth. Jesus came to us. There's nothing that, there's no reason he should love us the way he does. And he comes to us and he's like, there's nothing, nothing I should do to pursue you, but I'm pursuing you. There's nothing here, but I'm coming after you. And what God is doing, what Ruth does is she's, she's, make, she, she's going to do something that makes the tragedy beautiful. And that's what God does. He pursues us. He doesn't do the tragedy. He doesn't create the tragedy, but he is creating beauty out of the tragedy. What Ruth is doing is she is creating beauty out of this tragedy. She sees something in Naomi. She sees a flickering light that Naomi cannot even see in herself, but Ruth sees it, and God sees it in you. He sees it in the midst of your your life right now. He sees a flickering light, and he says, I'm running towards that because I'm going to make beauty out of tragedy. I'm the one who makes beautiful things out of tragedy. And so the last thing is when we feel like God has turned his back, he tangibly makes himself present through others. Again, Ruth. She's not passive. She's such a risk taker. And the young Moabite woman discards cultural protocol. Remember, she would not have a voice. 
in this culture, yet she uses her voice. She disobeys her mother-in-law. She says, go. She goes, no, I'm, I'm disobeying you in holy obedience. I'm coming after you. And Naomi is like Job, but Ruth is like Abraham, leaving her homeland and family heritage to follow Yahweh into an unknown land. And God's power took hold of her. There's no other explanation for this kind of love. So the hero in the book of Ruth is a God-forsaken woman who is a widow. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but God is establishing for us what he will do for the rest of Scripture. God loves to use marginalized and oppressed people to be the cornerstone of his kingdom work. He loves to use marginalized and oppressed people to be the cornerstone of his kingdom work. He is, she's a widow from the wrong side of the tracks, yet this is the person God gives as the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the redeemer of the world. And so um, I just want to say a couple of things as we close. First thing I want to say is um, if you are here, you're going through um, depression, you're going through um, if you're anxi- going through anxiety, I want to just say that like um, this is sometimes Christians have spiritualized things away that if you just have enough faith, those things will go away. I want to say that that's not the kind of church we are. That yes, God does do miracles and does powerful things spiritually, but He does use people to help us get help. Like if I break a bone in my body, I'm going to go to the doctor and find out how to get that fixed. If I'm chronically suffering from depression and I, my my things aren't firing off right, I'm going to go to the doctor and get that checked out. And at the same time, we pray. We pray for God to intervene. We pray for God to do miracles. We pray for God to do miraculous healing. But God sometimes does healing in ways that we don't expect. He sometimes uses human wisdom and he uses medicine. Sometimes he uses miraculous intervention. Um, but this is a place where, where we, you need to know that like, you, sometimes it's been taught in the church. Like If you just have enough faith, the reason you've you're, you're got depression is you just didn't have enough faith. That's not the case. That's not the case. And so, so, so some of you, you're in that season, and there's things that, like, sometimes you hear people talk about anxiety and pastors and just make you more anxious. But I want to hear us here that God is, like, coming. He does want to bring you hope in the midst of that. He does want to bring you healing from your wounds. And Jesus was the ultimate healer who died on the cross for us so that we could experience redemption I'm going to say three practical things and I want to close. I don't know if i got time for that. Is that cool? Um, three things for us, Missy O'Day. Number one, um, this is a safe place for everybody, no matter where you are in your journey. You may be like Naomi, who's just, God's dealt bitterly with me. I just want you to know that we, there's room for your doubt. Um, I've had people come and say, like, well, I just don't feel comfortable talking about my doubts and community. It feels awkward. I don't know if I'm going to be trusted. I don't know if it's a safe place. This is a safe place. No matter who you are or where you are in your journey, this is a safe place for you to talk about your doubts. But, but people, God's going to bring people along your life. He's going to bring covenantal friendship who are going to meet you in your doubts and bring hope to you in your doubts. The third thing is, is um, so we have, one, it's hard to read there, but um, we need to, second, we need a redemptive perspective on our suffering. If you're going to flourish in life, you need a redemptive perspective on your suffering. Um, Viktor Frankl, I don't know if you know him, but he was, in, he was a psychologist at the time of Freud. Freud was all about pleasure. Frankl said, no, man's life is all about meaning. He lived in a concentration camp. He was in this concentration camp where the Nazis were just basically brutalizing everyone. Everyone wanted to take their life. He would meet with these people, these guys one-on-one. He goes, you can't take your life. Here's why you cannot take your life, because you need to let the Nazis take your life. 
Because if the Nazis take your life, it will expose them for the horrific people that they are. And these people that begin to hear this begin to find meaning in their life. They begin to find purpose in their life. And actually nobody around Viktor Frankl took their life. He later would go on to work in a mental hospital, and everybody that Viktor Frankl worked with, he had a zero suicide rate with every person that he engaged because he began to help people find meaning in life. So I'm challenging you. I'm calling you to to step in to find redemption in your pain. And some of you, it's not going to come directly from your story, but it's going to come because you're going to begin to look at other people who suffered like you and help them live a different story. You're going to begin to invest in them because your greatest passion, church, comes from your pain. Your greatest passion always comes from your pain. So I'm calling us to find healing and redemption in the midst of our suffering. It can be as simple. It can be as simple as a blogging about your miscarriage and going, I know a story of a girl named Shauna. She blogged about her miscarriages and talked about how important it is to remember those due dates. And she got an email later, and she's like, this, this girl who had three miscarriages, she says, I tracked my doctors down. And I said, you've got to tell me the due dates. You've got to tell me the due dates. She's like, so I can remember those. It can be as simple as sharing your story, because God wants you to be serving people with your story. He doesn't want you to conceal your story. So many of you have concealed your story out of shame, concealed your story out of regret. God says, no, you need to share your story. So you can find redemption in your life. As I said, the fourth way we suffer is when you suffer for the right choice. And the right choice is to be vulnerable to share your story so that you can find redemption and others can find redemption through you. Amen. Amen. And then lastly, we need covenantal friendship. I just want to say this. If you're new to Missio Day, if you, I, I just, I'm going to go be a bold here. I'm not trying to be a sales. You, if you've been around this community, you know I'm not a salesy person. Um, I believe that if you gave a gospel community of this church a year of your life, you would be changed. Not five weeks, not, not two months. If you said, I'm going to go all into a community in this community, I believe your life will be changed. Not in the way you expect it, not in the way that you think, but he's going to bring covenantal friendship to you. Selfless friendship in this community, I believe, is a place that that has happened and will happen. I can say that with full confidence that we are a church family that practices selfless covenantal friendship and cares for the body of Christ. And so I just would just encourage you, like, be all in. Be all in to covenantal friendship. Or some of you, God's calling you to be a covenantal friend. He's calling you to be a covenantal friend in the midst of someone else's suffering. He's calling you to be that kind of Ruth presence. Um, and so in the midst of all this, God's working. So three things, Miss Day. Safe place here. Covenantal friendship. Redemption in your story. God wants to do these things in your life. Um, let's, let's just pray to him. Let's go to him in prayer. If the worship band would come on up. <clears throat> oh, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would help us um, let others into our story, into our suffering. For some of you here, you just, yeah, you, you resonate with Naomi's heart. You just, you do, you you, and it's good that we're owning our bitterness. But it's very important that we don't let our bitterness own ourselves. There's a difference between owning your bitterness and letting your bitterness own you. And we want to invite everyone here today just to surrender that to the Lord. Surrender their bitterness to you, Lord. We surrender our, how we've kind of put the blame on you, God, to come before you. 
And for some of you, um, you've been trying to handle your suffering alone. And when we do that, we believe we're God. We believe we're capable in ourselves to handle it in our own power. But I want you to know today that God loves you. I know you've heard it a thousand times. A flickering wick he will not put out. God has not forgotten you. If you would just keep your head and bowed, head bowed and eyes closed. Um, <clears throat> I believe there's some of you here who <clears throat> just experienced deep, deep wounding and pain. You've been fighting back anxiety, sorrow, depression, despair. Some of your soul feels so much sorrow. You feel like you're drowning in your wounds. You can't get free from bitterness. You can't get free from hurt. And you need to have those anchors around your neck broken this morning. If that's you, if you've been wondering if God cares, and this morning you're going, okay, God, I'm trusting you. I believe you care. I'm going to ask you, God, to do something in my life. I want to ask you to heal me this morning. I just want to, if that's you, I just want to ask you to do something difficult today. I want to pray for you, but before I do, I just want to ask you to stand right now. This small physical act of faith, an act of faith that says, I'm done living a life of brokenness. I'm done making and just living in brokenness. I'm tired of these wounds. Just stand wherever you are. Anybody else? just so sick and tired, too exhausted, if you would just stand so we can pray for you. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Don't worry about your reputation. Pray that there would be deep healing in your life this morning. It's beautiful. Thank you. I know it's hard to do such a thing. This is a safe place in which you're loved, and those are three difficult feet to jump up and stand up like that. We'll wait for you. God, you tell us that you are a healer. You are Jehovah Rapha. You are the God who heals. You're Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, and God, and for everyone standing here this morning, I just want to be so, if I could just be so brave to ask you to heal every single one of them this morning. To do such a deep mark on their life, to heal their wounds of the bad choices of others in their life, to free them from pain, free them from bad choices they've made, that there would be a new beginning a new story being written from their pain, Lord Jesus. This is the beginning of new things. This is the beginning of new things for you, that God would, you'd begin to find redemption in your story. You'd begin to see what he's doing in your life. God, I pray that you, that they would know that you not only exist, but you care for them, you matter. Surround them, Lord, with one or two people, those roofs in their life this week. Surround them with the covenantal friendship this week, that you're expressing uh, healing to them through other people. That you would express healing to them through friends, through a touch and a tangible anointing of their presence. Would you move towards them right now, Jesus?
Would you bring healing in their life? If all God's people would just stand with them today, stand as we close. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for your redemption. Holy Spirit, move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Amen. If you, um, we want to be praying for you. Um, whether you stood or not, we have prayer leaders for you. We, we want to just pray God over you. We want to pray God's redemption over you. We want to pray that you would be able to see perspective in the midst of your pain. So we just want to, we just want to keep putting leaders. If there's only two or three leaders back, just stand and wait in line. We'll try to grab more leaders. Um, but if God's moving, we want